0: Hey guys, I hope everyone listening is doing well in this unprecedented time of COVID-19. By now, everyone likely knows someone who has tested positive or has become an innocent victim of this virus. We're really fighting an invisible enemy that has no borders. The heavy hearts we all carry watching this from within the medical profession is something we could never truly be prepared for. Watching grandparents, fearing for their own lives if they see their grandchildren and become exposed and, Frontliners risking their own lives to save patients is something both personal and professional that no amount of medical school, residency, or fellowship could adequately prepare us for. While sitting in my home the last month with intermittent trips to the hospital for urgent procedures and rounds, I found myself really thinking about my own mortality and the what happens if questions like what would my family do, would I lose my unborn child, how much risk should I be taking? I was frantically talking to my OBs, my doctors, trying to figure out exactly where I fit into all of this. Questions that frankly, I didn't really think about in my young age previously. With at least 16% of positive tests belonging to healthcare workers here in the state of Ohio, and as high as 30% elsewhere, the oath I took as a medical doctor to tend to the sick and dying began began to have a really different view, something a little bit more deep. The pandemic brought on emotions of guilt, frustration, fear, anger, concern, sadness, and hope. Each emotion keeping me up at night, waking me up at night, and causing me to nervously lose track of time in the middle of the day, going deeper and deeper into news articles, emerging research on COVID-19, or trying to understand how it is we got here and why we were not more prepared. I can say, however, that with all the sadness, fear, and anger this virus has brought, the silver lining for me and many of my friends and colleagues has been the pause it has given us to spend time with the ones we love, reprioritize what is truly important and clean the heck out of our homes. <laughs> but truly, what we have done as healthcare professionals and as a world community of humans during this crisis is truly inspirational. People rising to new challenges, going above and beyond the sleepless nights, hours in labs, flying in PPE, risking their own lives to serve others. That's what real heroism is and that's really truly what it's all about. The world has united for the first time in all of history to protect each other, and that is truly impactful and special. Today's podcast may not be as fun as the fashion for the female medical professional, but my colleagues and I felt it really important to discuss the last 60 days or so from our resident and fellow viewpoint, giving our opinions and real life experiences and venting as much as we possibly can. I wanna introduce you guys, my friends, Dr. Francesco Egro, He's a fifth-year plastic surgery resident at University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Jessica Vavra, she's a second year plastic surgery fellow at University of Louisville. Dr. George Maliaris, second year plastic surgery fellow at University of Oklahoma, and Dr. Sabine Lavelle, second year plastic surgery fellow with me up here at Summa Health in Akron, Ohio. Welcome everyone. Hey. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks Hi, for being thanks here. For
1: having
0: us. It's a nice Sunday morning. In Ohio, it snowed uh, yesterday, so <laughs> in mid-April, but we're moving on, we're staying strong. Um, guys, you know, a little bit before we get into it, today's totals, um, as I'm sure everybody's following the world numbers, uh, in the world, we've got about 2 million, almost 2 million and a half cases. Here, we have about 740,000 cases. And world uh, world victims, uh, we have about 162,000 and 39,000 here in the United States. So we've seen this march up, up and up over the last few months. And I really want to start with each of you, kind of one at a time, and get your personal experiences with all of this, uh, going from you know, the beginning of when you you heard about it, and, um, and sort of how you've dealt with it personally, and any stories that you want to share um, as you've gone through it, kind of semi-quarantined. So uh, George, if we could start with you. Um, that would be great.
1: Yeah, well so as, um do you guys know I unfortunately had a little experience with the coronavirus and it happened to me a little bit early on so it was kind of before all the um all of the quarantining and the you know the the social distancing and everything was kind of implemented it was it was suggested but it wasn't really as far reaching as it is now obviously and in Oklahoma, you know, we don't have very many cases so People were talking about it, but it was more, you know, look what's happening in New York, look what's happening in Detroit. But from my experience, I can say, you know, and unfortunately, my my co-fellow also ended up getting it. And he got it a lot worse than I did. Um, it kind of just started out as some strange symptoms. I couldn't, you know, I had a complete anosmia. I couldn't taste anything. It just kind of turned into some, a strange, uh, you know, group of symptoms from like upper respiratory stuff to a dry cough to just feeling really tired and myalgias and that was kind of what mine um what it kind of you know the extent of it um that lasted about a week or so and then afterwards the strange thing for me was that i felt like i had no reserve afterwards you know it was very difficult to kind of just walk more like more than flight of steps or more than 500 feet without getting completely winded, despite you know my lungs being clear and um, having you know no other symptoms whatsoever. Um, you know, it just took a little bit of time to get over with over it, and I just kind of rested. I tried to you know I didn't participate in any patient care directly. You know, it was you know, I luckily we had cleared out the schedule, so I was able to you know just wear an N95 all the time, go to the go to the office, look at the patient list, and then basically just leave the hospital and go home and rest. So um, like I said, my co-fellow ended up getting much sicker uh, tested positive and he's actually been out for a couple weeks now I think now he's his symptoms have subsided so he's going to get retested now before he can come back to the hospital but it's it was scary and it's scary to hear you know what's going on in other places with it that's for sure so um, it is uh, it was not it was not enjoyable that's for sure
0: and I think it's really interesting because in your area it doesn't sound like it's been hit or at least at that time you know the thought was it's probably you're a little bit more secluded you probably didn't have as much risk as new yorky like you said in detroit so for you to come down with it you know is i mean is is pretty concerning i mean i think the risk of uh they had said and francesco you could probably speak to this but i know in italy um, a majority of the physicians that succumbed to the illness were um, in fact ear nose and throat or anesthesiologists um and so I think as plastic surgeons, we're also getting exposed, especially in those craniofacial cases right. and trauma cases. I mean, did, were you doing a lot of those at the time? Yeah,
1: you know, what's what's funny is, you know, a week, about a week and a half, two weeks before I started feeling sick, we had a very, very heavy week of, you know, I pretty much most of the days of the week were spent either doing facial trauma cases or palates or pharyngoplasties. It was a very heavy, like craniofacial and like face trauma week. And my co fellow that actually got a lot sicker than I did, a little bit later than I did, we you know, me and him uh, did lots of these facial traumas together actually. We were scrubbed in the same cases. So if I could, you know, pick an instance that maybe we were both exposed to it, it would maybe be during one of those cases. Um, that's the you know, pretty much the only place I could think of because I couldn't think of anybody else that had similar symptoms before we did. You know, we've all there's only four there's four fellows at the University of Oklahoma. You know, we're a small program but we cover three different hospitals with ORs. So um, but it's, you know, at one point over the past couple of months, we've each had some random, you know, upper respiratory like symptoms or a cough, but way before this had even become kind of something that was published, you know, noted on the news and talked about. So it's kind of hard to say, you know, maybe it was around before that, but it's, you know, it's, yeah that's the, the best assumption I can make is that it was maybe during those cases.
0: Gosh, well, we're so happy that you made it through and that your co-fellow is doing well as well. Um, as we know, there's um, unfortunate, especially with healthcare workers, and we know the. I think Jessica, you know the um, the the OMFS fellow up in Detroit that passed recently. Is that correct?
2: Uh, he, I didn't know him personally. When I would have been there, he would have still been. Uh, I think in his medical school training years. I know I get a little confused always with OMFS and how they go through training. I do know that he was in his. Uh, chief year, uh, and and they usually do about, I think, close to 10 months with our program in Detroit. They rotate on our general surgery service. So a lot of my junior residents, I actually found out that he had passed before a lot of my attendings because I still talk to a lot of my junior residents, and they had messaged me the morning. Um, He had passed away from a Thursday into a Friday, and I I had gotten the notification Friday morning uh, that he had passed, and I think it took a toll on a lot of my attendings. I talked to some of them, and they could hardly even speak about it because those the OMFS residents, they're with us for so long, they become part of our family almost as general surgery residents. So it
0: was tough yeah. in Detroit. I think it really kind of, I think for me, his, his passing really put things in a, a, a different light. Um, you know, I, think, I mean, it's, it was scary, it made things more real. I mean, what were you thinking, George, as you were kind of going through this as far as, did you have any, you know, fears about what was to come? potentially the next day or the next night or, you know, um, it was, and really you know, I definitely, you
1: know, I was telling, I told my wife the same thing. I'm not usually somebody that's afraid of a little viral illness or something, you know, like even some of the stuff we've seen in the news before, I'm like, yeah, that's never going to happen here. Or, you know, we all kind of have this, we're all very privileged to, you know, to live in the United States and to have the health care that we have and whatnot. But it's, this is the first time I can say that anything is, it's, it, Concerned me like I was legitimately afraid, you know, more than once and like, I hope I don't get worse You hear these story these nightmare stories of some people who are younger who have, you know, just Terrible terrible outcomes and different presentations that nobody was really expecting, you know, like, you know, a friend of a close friend of mine is the uh, director of trauma and critical care the surgical intensive care unit at Beaumont Dearborn, which, you know, oh, Michigan has has had as many deaths as Oklahoma has had total cases. So the stuff that he's seeing and the stories I would hear from him, you know, was more, I was more concerned about him being exposed to it and being there as, you know, a a surgical critical care attending, but it's, you you can't help but get worried about, you know, the disease progressing or getting worse or or more because we don't, we don't know it was, it was presenting so differently in so many different people that I didn't really know what to expect, you know, every day was kind of like, you know, I feel okay, hopefully I don't get better or I'm sorry, I don't get worse, but you know, it was it was a little bit scary there for a couple of days.
0: Yeah, I can't I can't imagine. I mean, I know it's more likely a matter of when than if for most of us, uh, especially as we you know the volume under the curve doesn't change. The peak may change, but the volume doesn't. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, hopefully, not interesting, but hopefully you know things go pretty smoothly. But I think at some point we're all going to probably end up coming down with it. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, just a matter of when. Um, Francesco, um, you know, from your perspective over at University of Pittsburgh and being, uh, uh, you know, thoroughbred Ital- Italian, um, kind of what what do you see as uh, the last 60 days?
3: So I have a bit of an unusual perspective. Um, I was uh, <laughs> taking some uh, some leave uh, because I had my wife in hospital pregnant and then I had some paternity leave to look after them. Uh, so during that time, which was was. February and beginning of March, that's when things really boomed uh, in Italy as well. So I had my whole family back at home in Milan, which is uh, the epicenter of the uh, Italian uh, pandemic. And they kept asking me questions about, you know, what to do and what is this virus? Is it serious? Is it not serious? Because just like here in this country, the level of information was uh, was very much bipolar. You know, on one side you had some people that uh, would uh, uh, say this is just a flu, it's not a big deal, versus others saying you really have to take it seriously. Look at what's happening in China. So it was very hard for uh, the layperson, and the same thing here in the states, to to really grasp uh, uh, the severity and what uh, uh, the severity of, of this virus and what actions had to be taken. So I mean, they were asking me, and I'm a plastic surgeon. Sure, I did a microbiology degree, but I, I don't remember anything. So <laughs> I was like, well, I don't know what I can tell you, but but right, what what, right. I, what 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 really ended up happening is that um, given my time that I had, uh, spending time in the hospital and so on. I did a lot, a lot, a lot of reading, and I started with looking at uh, uh, international media outlets, uh, uh, including, you know, Italian media, other European countries like United Kingdom, Spain and so on. Um, And then I started re-looking into the literature and the reports that were coming out from China and uh, other Asian countries. So in, within a week, I, I really had a very clear idea. And again, I'm not a, an infectious disease doctor, but it was very easy to see, uh, just looking at trends, that they, this was a really big deal. So um, talking to them, I advised them before they placed a formal lockdown, I told them you have to stay home uh, because this is a, a very highly transmissive uh, uh, virus. And you know, again, it's just a matter of looking at numbers. So in, eventually they put up a formal lockdown, and now um, uh, it started with the epicenter of Milan and the region, and then now the whole country is in lockdown, and other European countries have followed. Uh, the situation was really, and it really is still dire, but the deaths were so bad over there that uh, the cemeteries uh, were completely full. So they had to physically transport with army trucks dead bodies from the hospital to another city cemetery to cremate them and then bring them back uh, to, to that mm-hmm. town. I mean, that, that was like, and, and that's what's happening in Spain. Uh, so it was very anticlimactic for me to come back to work after my leave, and, and now we're talking about um, early March, uh, and, and see that despite the, U, the first case in the US, And again, this is, there's a lot of misconception about, you know, when things started, you know, who had the first case and so on, we don't really know. But the gist is the first case that we can potentially trace back in China was maybe October, November, December, we don't really know. But the World Health Organization reported, uh, um, uh, or sorry, China reported to the World Health Organization uh, that there was an epidemic happening in Wuhan In uh, uh, at the end of December. The first case in the U.S., as reported in the New England Journal of Medicine, was January 19th. France then followed after five days, then Germany, Italy was 12 days later. So I could not understand why, despite Italy being afterwards, why isn't the U.S. so fearful? I I was going back to the hospital and I had my kid in the ICU, and no one was wearing masks. Uh, uh, you know, there was no real testing. If you look January, February, there was pretty much no uh, testing, as reported in the CDC. There were no federal mm-hmm. institution policies or guidelines. So uh, it, it was very, it was very, very, very strange. Um, so given the situation, my personal situation, I felt that I had to take. Uh, proactive actions, because I I was going to go back to work, and uh, uh, just like George was saying and we're discussing, we deal with head and neck cases, we deal with facial trauma, and uh, as then it turned out, these cases are transmitted not just by droplet, but so it's airborne, you know, they can can be aerosolized, exactly, it can be Mm aerosolized, the New England Journal of Medicine published studies showing that... uh, uh, the virus persists in the air, aerosolized for three hours. Uh, so that means that if you're in the operating room and are just wearing a standard mask, there's a high chance of potentially contracting. Um, so there weren't really policies or guidelines in place. Uh, eventually, then there was a, la- a national emergency declared and so on. But that was before and so I took proactive actions and I ended up... Uh, Getting you know purchasing some N100 masks for myself and my family, uh, just in case I would have to go back, and so at least they, they had some degree of protection. You know, cleaning supplies, food uh, supplies, because again, I didn't know without having testing, you you just don't know how bad each county, each state, and each country is. Uh, so I didn't really know what to expect. But uh, seeing the trends in other in in other European countries, it was. Very likely that our numbers would surpass, right. uh, and I ended up also renting out another apartment, so that basically when I started my rotations, uh, I moved out and I, I left my family in the other apartment with my in-laws, uh, and I, you know, I see them from a distance. But oh uh, it's just it's it's it's. it's Are you still doing that,
0: Francesco? Are you still living separately?
3: Yes. Yes wow things things are probably gonna i mean again i what i've noticed is that there are different extremes of how seriously someone takes it i think the Mm -hmm. more the more i read about it the more uh, i became the more severe extreme Um, right but just like you were saying at the in your introduction um how could you live with yourself if uh, you were the source of I know that you have kids but you know you were the one transmitting and bringing home the virus and and uh, uh, and your kid or your husband uh, you know becomes ill and unfortunately there are reports of uh, you know there's this misconception uh, in the public that this is a virus that affects just the elderly population uh, unfortunately there are reports of uh, covid 19 positive patients as early as newborns um, mm-hmm. So, so, so it's 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 very tough to know uh, who has it, who doesn't have it. JAMA published uh, an article uh, of the preliminary Italian data, showing that 30% are are have are severe enough or critically ill, but really the, the rest, which is you know 70%, either have no symptoms or have few or mild symptoms. You know what I mean? So it, right. it's, it's hard to know as you mm-hmm. walk around, whether it's in your building or whether it's in the hospital, who has it and who doesn't have it. Right, uh, it's the
0: invisible enemy. You, it, that's what makes it so difficult.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, I think it's good that uh, uh, with time, again, it's all about data. With time, more testing has been done. Uh, now we know which, ones, uh, which parts of the country are hotspots. Uh, you know, you see New York, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania is just back there. But fortunately, it's uh, Pittsburgh. Only in the in my in my area, so the Allegheny County, we only have 1,000 cases and 47 deaths. Um, but again, if you look at the numbers, we're still testing in proportion. Half, half, half. Um, we're doing half of the number of tests in Italy. And we have uh, a, a similar to a little less cases than than Italy. Uh, so mm-hmm. the picture, the picture that we have is still fairly unclear. Uh, and uh, you know, hopefully with time we'll get a better idea of if there, you know, what is the penetrance uh, of this virus. Uh, and you know, our program has taken. I'm very proud of our program because before policies were ensued and so on, we took a very proactive approach. And uh, you know, we skeletonize our team so that we would alternate residents were placed into two, in two teams basically, and take uh, every other week. Uh, we arrange everything virtually uh, in terms of educational uh, things like grand rounds, core conferences, uh, indications conferences, uh, rotation specific conferences. Uh, we created new ways of um, new uh, kind of New ways of uh, leading uh, educational rounds, uh, whether it's uh, you know discussing surgical technique, because you know the case volume has decreased. Eventually, the institutions recognized, and I, I'm curious to know what you guys have in your institutions. But in our in, in our institutions, they eventually removed all elective cases, so the surgical volume went down. Our operative experience decreased, and uh, and so we we found a lot of ways to. Uh, enhance our uh, learning uh, opportunities whether with uh, live lectures from societies and journals uh, chiefs uh, are setting up uh, new ways of teaching whether it's again uh, you know how does this attending perform their separation of components and you know you Mm -hmm. have to be kind of creative during this time Uh, but it'll be interesting to see what's gonna happen over the next uh, month or so since uh, the you know, just a few days, uh, it was announced uh, the three phases of reopening the countries have been uh, right. have been announced, mm-hmm. uh, and it will be really see to see if there is a uh, uh, a resurgence uh, or a further increase of the. I mean, we 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 are still at the peak, so it's not that it's trending down, mm-hmm. but we'll see. It will be interesting to see what's going to happen with everything reopening.
0: Yeah, I think that's the di- that's the current discussion, and I hope we don't rush back. Uh, too fast. I mean, I think that's the fear for all of us, especially in the medical profession. We're all eager to get back to work. Most, of, you yeah. know, most Americans, most of the world's eager to get back to work and get back to their normal routines. But uh, certainly it does seem a little bit um, anxiety-provoking yeah. uh, that a resurgence is definitely something that's possible. The reality
3: is, that, I mean, there's two scenarios. There's going to be a new normal until we either or get it, just like you said, uh, or uh, we get a vaccine. But so I think regardless, I think a new, new norms will have to be instituted for the, for the coming year or in terms of uh, you know, what, what is meant by social distancing and so on. Uh, because we, we, we haven't really locked down the country in the United States. Uh, you know, some people call it lockdown, but it hasn't really been. People have been, you know, driving around, running around, getting out of the house. That's that's just social distancing. And mm-hmm. so it will be very, very interesting to see what's uh, what the numbers will, you know, what's going to happen.
4: Well, it's interesting also, Francesco, how you were mentioning social distancing from your family. And I know a lot of medical workers across the United States have had to do this. And um, personally, my husband, he's a vascular surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic. And, um, you know, I'm a plastic and reconstructive surgery fellow here with uh, Stephanie and uh, SUMA. And we were discussing amongst ourselves if we need to socially distance in our own home from each other. Um, because we were concerned about, you know, cross contamination and potentially being asymptomatic carriers, get, getting the other one infected or cross contaminating, you know, hospitals. Uh, since we work in, in different hospitals, um, we ended up ultimately deciding that, you know, we would not social distance in our own home. But um, it's 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 a crazy notion that we would even consider such a thing. You know, even several months ago, I mean, to, to discuss social distancing from, from your spouse would, I agree.
3: I agree. And I think it's, uh, honestly, it comes down to risk assessment. Every yeah. situation is, is very different. You have, uh, uh, it, you know, if you have, you know, statistically speaking, uh, just younger people at home and, uh, and your rotation is predominantly breast surgery uh, then you know your chances of contracting it if you take the appropriate precautions are significantly lower if you're doing uh, head and neck reconstruction and working with the pharynx like i'm doing now uh, where you literally have the trachea and you're reconstructing you know those defects right there where the virus lives so i think Mm -hmm. I, i think it's a matter of risk assessment each situation is different Having two physicians, realistically, it's, you know, there's no point in social distancing because, you know, you're both going to risk it anyway. You know what I mean?
4: Yeah, and at this point, we don't have any children yet, but um, I, I can only imagine with you having, you know, a couple kids at home and a newborn. I mean, that's, that's...
3: I'm, i I have my in-laws. That's, that was another big factor. Right. Oh, aside yeah. from, uh, from, uh, because my wife is still recovering, so she couldn't quite pick up the, the kids and... And so I ha- we needed help, and so our in-laws kindly helped, and you know, my, my mother also came. Uh, uh, so it would be putting up, putting at risk uh, a, uh, people who uh, we know are at higher risk of mortality, since uh, right. all the data is pointing towards anyone mm-hmm. who's over 60 have a significantly higher risk of mortality. Um, so again, it's a 100% a matter of risk assessment. If I lived alone, you know, it wouldn't be an issue.
4: (laughs) And um, kind of switching gears to virtual educational opportunities, um, I've been, you know, pleasantly surprised at how much uh, studying and learning and so forth um, you can do at home, especially now with American Society of Plastic Surgery, Aesthetic Surgery Journal, all these different um, plastic surgery associations um, coming together and p- putting out virtual grand rounds and lecture series and so forth. So I think this is ultimately going to kind of shape the future of also our um, plastic surgery education. Um, it's really nice to be able to join these virtual grand rounds and hear leaders in the field talk about um, you know their their areas of expertise. And um, our program has also done a really nice job. With, um, you know, continuing our educational duties and so forth on a weekly basis by having our journal clubs and our lectures and um, visiting professors and so forth uh, on WebEx or Zoom or or whatnot. So I think this is really going to kind of shape our our educational um, uh, platform kind of in the future.
3: I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think uh, this period has really taught us a lot about what are potential future opportunities, and I think a lot of the practices that we are uh, that have been introduced now in, uh, during this COVID period, I think they will persist. For example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, telemedicine is something that was uh, uh, strongly underutilized. I don't know your institutions, but at my institution. Uh, the majority of appointments are now being performed under telemedicine, except those patients, yes. that are, you know, post patients that still have drains and so on. Um, but, you know, from an educational perspective, Grand Rounds, I mean, that's a great example. And, I, and I'm glad that you brought it up, because a lot of, not, not just the societies and journals, but a lot of other programs are opening uh, their Grand Rounds uh, to the whole nation. And so you know you have leaders of uh, of the field, like San, uh, University of San Diego had uh, Dr. Rorick, then uh, um, uh, Dr. Gordon Lee from Stanford. You know it, it's awesome. You you basically have a visiting a virtual visiting professor from masters in the field every every week and multiple times per week. So mm-hmm. it would be interesting to see if that persists.
1: Yeah, I agree with that too. I think that this is. Um I think it's going to only, you know, it's going to make academic plastic surgery better. It's just going to expand the the ability for us to um, communicate within programs, to so share grand rounds, like Francesco was saying. You know, this during this the quarantine, it's been uh, again, Dick, you guys mentioned it's it's unfortunate to not be able to be in the operating room as much as we all want to, but at the same time, like again, the ASPS uh, virtual grand rounds, you know, spending more time on things like radar and. You know there's a number of online resources and I think those are probably even just get better from now and that'll just be when this is all said and done maybe we'll just have part of our education will be improved because of you know how more the, the increased amount of communication between programs even are based on this you know virtual platform that we've started now completely
4: so, agree
1: so maybe that'll be yeah, a positive yeah this is
0: definitely definitely a positive. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of positives in all of this. I mean, as we were allowed to sort of take a step back and take pause, and, and I think none of us are the type of people, and, and none of us being the collective, like, medical health population, are the type of people that usually rest on our laurels about things. I think we try to take action, move forward, and figure out the best way to, you know, advance our knowledge. And I think clearly you can see here that this is uh, this is a triumph, I think, for all of us. I think all all residents all fellows, all medical students. I think this is going to really change and hopefully um, not, I hope it's not something that dies out. I mean, I think we just have to work hard as our generation to really keep things moving forward, including each other's programs, um, including in, uh, like, I, like uh, Sabine had said, I mean, I think our societies are doing an amazing job of just with outreach and education. It's, uh, it's truly truly magnificent it's been a very enriching four weeks in something that could have been you know completely silent so Mm -hmm. so certainly so so I think you know Jessica down at um down at Louisville what have you what have you all done to kind of uh social distance and what is your program director and and uh what does everything look like
2: yeah so We actually had another thing we can kind of discuss a little bit too were interviews right when kind of Kentucky was starting to discuss closing things down and we did hold both of our interviews um, and then kind of right after that is when we canceled our uh, in-person conferences and uh, doing elective cases. We're pretty much doing what you guys are doing, uh, face trauma, burns, we have a big burn unit here so we do a lot of those, and then hand trauma and cancer cases essentially is all we're doing down here. And then we've pretty much implemented, our, our PD sends us a, a list every Monday of the topics he wants us to review for the week. And then we are uh, to watch the the ASPS Grand Rounds, which I will say have been phenomenal. And they are recorded, which is very helpful in case you aren't able to watch them live, as well as the the ASJ. I know you guys had mentioned that one, too. So we've been watching those uh, Grand Rounds. And it will be nice, to, hopefully, if they keep that up afterwards, because it is nice to see some of these um experts in the field like Dr. Janice was on and, and uh, Nelligan and it, it was very interesting to see their perspective and, and expands your knowledge also instead of just learning under your group of attendings at your program you see all the different ways because there's many ways to skin a cat in plastic surgery as we all know so it's nice to see all that the differences um, so but we have all of our hospitals have implicated we are masked 24-7 here once you enter the hospital you get your temperature taken and get a mask And then, obviously, we were supplied. We have N95 masks for if we do interact with COVID patients. Um, Other than that, it's really it's it's almost we have a nice group chat going, but it's almost like we we do miss seeing each other. (laughs) We text out and we're patiently waiting when we can get back to our uh, in-person conferences. So, um, but I'm I'm going to be interested to see how the match goes. I know the match got pushed back, and I was talking to one of our. Fourth-year general surgery residents here who has applied, and about half of his uh, interviews were in person, and half were uh, online, doing Zoom or um, some other platform. It'll be interesting to see how he makes his rank list, or how this affects uh, that. Because I mean, we could go to all virtual interviews and not have to do interviews in person anymore, which. It would be nice to save a little cash yeah. on a resident salary, but I, yeah. it'll be nice to do some studies of that once the match happens. I know it's not happening until June now, so.
0: Yeah, I said that from, I don't know, starting 10 years ago, that all of these in-person interviews, you know, while it's great, you know, some of them are a little bit of a cattle call, so you really lose that intimacy anyways. They could really be done virtually. I mean, there's no reason at this at this juncture even. Um, you know, it's nice, but it is extremely costly and that Cost burden does fall on us for most of these. Uh, very few programs do pick up you know, flights and hotels. So um, you know, again, again, another silver lining in all of this.
4: I think we're all also very fortunate at our programs that um, that our program directors and everyone in our graduate medical education is keeping us safe. And um, having we have good personal protective equipment, um, you know, masks assigned, you know, masks that were given to us. um, And then also just good practice where where when we enter the hospital, they check your temperature. They ask if you have any type of um, symptoms. And um, I know at our hospitals, we're limiting visitors. Uh, some hospitals aren't even allowing any visitors unless it's a special circumstance But um, I think these are all important measures to try to decrease the spread
2: Yeah, we have we have no visitors at our hospitals right now they implemented that they they had it to one visitor And now it's no visitors even patients who are having surgery. Um, they aren't even allowed families in the pre-op area They just they call their family when the patients are uh, ready to be discharged and to come pick them up so um, but we are starting, I'm, I'm happy to see this and I will definitely be participating. I know you guys have probably read up on this about the plasma donations for patients or people who were already exposed. Um, we are going to start, uh, I think hopefully here, electively you can have your blood drawn and tested to see if you had uh, COVID and then they check your antibody load and if you have a good load of antibodies you are able to... Um, voluntarily donate some plasma and they're going to hopefully start treating some of the um vented patients who are having difficulty resolving uh the covid virus so hopefully we can start doing that soon and see how that works
4: um george francesco well all all of you guys um so other than george and his co-fellow have any of you all been Uh, either personally affected by coronavirus or had any co-fellows or co-residents or attendings who have contracted it?
2: Uh, We had, uh, again, this is probably around the time George was having symptoms. One of my co-fellows, like mid-March, had uh, classic symptoms. He had fevers, malaise, uh, muscle aches uh, for about, he had it for about a week and a half but at that time that's where they were not testing everyone if you were young and healthy they just had you self-quarantine so he theoretically had it but we don't have any tests confirming that unless he were to get the the antibody test the blood work done to have your antibodies yeah. checked so
0: I think that's been the most frustrating part actually for probably all of us I think is we say we the same story Jess up here um, one of our co-fellows likely had it Um. And, and I actually had a, a tertiary exposure that in the very beginning of all of this, I think I scared the heck out of everybody, um, <laughs> especially the nurses when I came back. But, um, you know, n- they wouldn't test us. They, you know, they were right. only really testing. And, and I think it's changed just a little bit, but they're still really only testing, at least here in Ohio, uh, if you're, you're pretty symptomatic, meaning, you know, things are getting worse before they get better. You're hospitalized. Um, you're hospitalized. Um, at least that's the way it was yeah. a month ago. Um, yeah, that's how it's which, been here too. Yeah, which I think going forward, that's similar, you know, That's and similar hopefully, to
3: Pittsburgh as well. Yeah, that's what yeah, that's happens I mean it, here as well. And, and, and we had, uh, we had uh, a bunch of uh, residents and um, attendings who uh, have been... Uh, exposed, uh, not tested, exposed, uh, and have been quarantined um, for two weeks. So, but it uh, confirmed that we had uh, our incoming intern, uh, but he he's coming from New York, that uh, he unfortunately also got it, but he's, doing, he, he's fortunately doing well. Yeah, and
0: I think as we go forward, is kind of one of the things of how will we, how will we resolve this as a medical profession? How do we build in these phases? It's gonna be universal, ubiquitous testing. Um, you know, certainly when you know patient shows up in the uh, preoperative bay, you know they're gonna need a COVID swab, you know, before they're taken back to the operating room. I, I think that's you know whether that's how exactly it goes down or, or not, but I think that that's where we're gonna see. Uh, potentially a change and maybe you know I mean I know I've heard um, murmurs over in Israel I mean they're they're swabbing people before they go into grocery stores and you know I mean it, it needs to be that easy and that rapid I think in order to be able to quell a resurgence I mean what are your thoughts on this?
3: I, I think um, I think that's a very valid point point. Uh, and I think uh, it's going to come down to risk assessment uh, for patients as well and for what kind of procedures in the ideal situation, every single person, like in the ideal situation in my mind, uh, you know, you you have, if you could turn back in time, you have just a few cases. You trace back and uh, to who has been exposed, who hasn't been exposed, and so on, and you test everyone. At this stage, we're basically trying to catch up to gather data. Yeah, I think yeah. the future once, uh, uh, fortunately, uh, um, the United States have been. Uh, have now really activated the industry and the brain work of of, of our nation. Uh, And so there's gonna, there's increased number of rapid testings and as more tests become available, you know, the situations that we're describing where maybe, you know, you guys feel that uh, you haven't been tested appropriate or whatever, I think hopefully that will disappear. And so, you know, any procedure, I agree with you that uh, should warrant, uh, should warrant uh, uh, testing. Oh, our head and neck cases, uh, uh, my bosses have been advocating for that for a few weeks because there's a, a high percentage of mortality, uh, as shown by data coming from South Korea, mm-hmm. of head and neck uh, cases mm-hmm. basically dying. And so that's why a lot of institutions um, have stopped operating completely, even doing the ablation aspect of the surgery uh so ideally every every patient needs to be tested and plus because this will probably go on for months and months ideally we're going to transition to surgical masks to everyone wearing an n95 mask on a daily basis but it's it's a matter of catching up and plus the the, the next step forward will be uh you know testing is into there's two types of testing. There's the diagnostic testing, which is what you mentioned, the nasopharyngeal swabs, but there's also uh, antibodies testing, so serological testing. And so that would also give us a much better idea of how uh, the virus has penetrated within communities. And that would allow, from a public health standpoint, uh, to control and mitigate the situation in a much, much better way.
1: Yeah, I agree with everything Francesco just said. I think risk mitigation is going to be the really Really important thing going forward, especially too, when we're talking about getting back to elective surgeries and whatnot. And there's, you know, it's, it might be the same paper that you're talking about, Francesco. There's, there's data that shows a 20% mortality, you know, just being an asymptomatic carrier of COVID and having an elective procedure. And you know that that warrants something being done about it, whether it was a small study or not. But those the discussions um, at our institution, I believe, right now before we start. Um, opening up for elective procedures again is making sure that there's enough testing and the and possibility of testing everybody that's going to have an elective procedure before just because, you know, that's, that's an unacceptable risk if those numbers hold true to 20% mortality, even if you don't have symptoms. is just something you have, you have to do something about before, you know, putting patients at risk.
0: So. Yeah, I know in, in New York, um, that study came out recently about, uh, it was an OB study. Of course, I'm very interested in OB studies right now um but how they were testing actually every female that came in it's the operating room i think the dates were between um march and early april uh excuse me every uh pregnant um uh every pregnant female that came in to deliver and they were testing them all and what they found was that uh actually i I don't actually have the study right in front of me but a pretty significant high number of positive asymptomatic pregnant females Um, which just tells you how underreported it is in the general population, right? I mean, there's just so many people walking around that are positive that we just don't know that are asymptomatic and the fear really is. I mean, they're coming into the hospital, they're exposing our weakest, our immunocompromised, our youngest, our oldest. And so we really need to be on the defensive about this and I, I I agree. I mean, I think that that's going to be the the change that we're going to see biggest in healthcare is probably this universal testing. And just in in what aspect? And hopefully, uh, you know, we get enough tests. I know our hospitals been slowly. I mean, it's, it's actually, um, and I I would say our hospitals. I mean, I've been incredibly impressed, incredibly impressed with their response to this. I don't necessarily think everything is within their hands. Um, You know certainly access to rapid testing has become really only available within the last few weeks um, it seems as far as with the FDA approvals and such so hopefully that becomes a little bit more robust the manufacturing grows and we see that um, as something easy to get you know just like you know gloves used to be you know things like that so But, um, but yeah, so I think as we move forward, we're going to see a lot of changes, the, and I think it's all been very encouraging. Of course, we're taking the good with the bad and all of this, um, you know, like I said in the beginning, the personal and professional side of it has been the hardest, at least for me. Um, you know, I know, Jessica, you had mentioned that you had some personal stories uh, with family um, that yeah. made things a little bit difficult.
2: Yeah, I mean, Kentucky, thankfully, um, like Oklahoma, has not been – a hard-hit state. I think we have about 2,700 cases in this the whole state. Um, so that's been, I've been thankful for that. I've also felt a little useless, especially coming from Detroit and seeing all of my uh, previous uh, attendings and residents and, and how they're faring. But for me, because we have had a, a lack of cases here, it's been more of a personal experience with my my families from Eastern Ohio. It's only about four hours away, but even now it's gonna be hard to decide when we as healthcare workers can go back to visiting our family. Um, my aunt unfortunately uh, passed away a few weeks ago, not of COVID, of cancer related complications. And her funeral was done um, just with the priest and, and um, her son was there and it was video streamed on YouTube. So that was, it was very interesting. And I, and I watched it at home. I, I asked my attending if I could um, miss clinic that day to watch my aunt's funeral. Uh, so it was, And then I've missed, uh, my goddaughter's birthday was canceled, we did that via Zoom. So And my, uh, my new godson, his baptism was canceled. So for me, it's been more of a personal family, and, and when am I going to be able to go home? I'm the only healthcare worker in my family, so they can all get back to normal lives once things start opening up, but when, when am I going to be able to go see them, um, that it's safe? Even if, even if we had not gone on quarantine, Kentucky did put a travel ban on. Uh, and, the, and if those things did happen, I, st- I still probably wouldn't have gone home personally just because I don't want to risk exposing anyone in my family. Um, so it's been tough for me on the personal side of things. And my grandma, who's, um, she's my only grandparent left, and she's uh, 101. She'll be 102 wow. in two weeks. Uh, her nursing home has been on uh, no visitation for about four weeks now. And the tough thing for us is she's actually healthy as a horse aside from some arthritis. But she, um, she does have a little bit of dementia setting in, and, and my mom sees her regularly, and she always remembers my mom. Now, when I go home, she'll remember me, but it, it kind of comes and goes. And now my mom's concern is that without seeing her, she's going to start uh, becoming fully demented and not remember mm. anyone mm, in our family. But my mom has tough. been able, the nursing home has been wonderful about um, she does have a window room, so she does do the whole go to the window thing. And my grandma's recognizing her. So for me, it's been oh, okay. less of a in hospital mm-hmm. situation, more of a when am I going to get to see my family, personal. It's tough. So
1: yeah, my family's all in Detroit, so I, yeah. I hear you on that aspect too. And it's uh, on top of everything. It's uh, I don't know if you know any other Greek people, but it's a Greek Easter today, and like this, this is the time yes. we. It's the hardest time to keep anybody who's Greek in a house. So. Usually I'd be flying home and seeing my family. You know, my, my mom's in Detroit, so is my brother and uh, sister-in-law and my nephew and people that I wanna see, but it's, you know, when are we gonna feel safe traveling again even when it's all kind of past, that's the thing. So it is definitely tough.
0: Yeah, I think this, this is incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, you know, again, not just from a medical standpoint, going into the hospital and treating patients you know, especially with COVID, COVID positive patients. And I really think every single person on the front lines, we haven't necessarily been on the front lines, but we are uh, at risk and, you know, but coming home I think has really been the most challenging and, 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 and something that I wasn't prepared to deal with. Um, you know, all of these questions that you've, you've all brought up, all of, you know, when are we going, when are we going to be able to travel? When are we going to be see, able to see our loved ones? Um, that was, those are our support system. That's what got us this far in medicine. Um, So certainly um, it's been tough. It's been tough mentally, emotionally, physically. Um, And I know that we all have the strength to move, move through it, persevere and be stronger. Uh, But it's been definitely a challenge for sure.
4: So any last thoughts from anybody today?
1: What do you guys you know, all think about? I'm
4: excited to see. I'm excited to see you know some results on future vaccines and um, clinical trials on the medications and so forth. So I think you know there's a lot of bright people all around the world working on this, and um, we're all coming together. You know, like like you'd mentioned, Stephanie, that um, the world is is really everyone in the world's kind of coming together to try to, to battle this. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, I, I think that the, the future is bright and we just um, have to stay strong. Mm-hmm.
1: I have one last thought. What do you guys all think about how this is going to change being a plastic surgeon after? You know, personally, I'm in the phase now where I'm starting to look at places of employment, um, trying to get things set up for when I'm finished. And, you know, I can't help but think that there's, I've seen there's a lot of call to change, you know, about healthcare care, and, and this could probably be an entire podcast in itself, um, but, you know, what's everybody's thoughts on how the availability for positions or how plastic surgery to practice will change after this? You know, because I'm thinking there's lots of people that are new in maybe private practice that are going to be affected by this financially. Are those people going to have to go looking for some of these maybe hospital employed or academic jobs or some of the things that I've been looking at, and will that change my Ability to get a spot versus somebody who's already been out and been established. You know that to me, if I was a hospital administrator, I'd want the person with more experience. But
3: you know, I think I think you guys think uh, about that. I I remember I remember um, hearing a talk about uh, uh, you know one. It was a very senior plastic surgeon who discussed uh, the impact of uh, plastic surgery during a previous uh, financial crisis, and he basically said you always want to do a little bit of reconstruction in your everyday practice, because at least you have a fallback um, in in times of crisis, which this is, you know, this pandemic is an example. I I, I think there's gonna be restrictions and uh, from fellows who are looking for jobs now, the the job market is extremely, extremely tough. So I wonder whether, you know, trying to focus more on reconstructive, reconstructive jobs at this time uh, mm-hmm. is probably a better idea in terms of the kind of practice that you that uh, that, that people should aim for. And again, I'm a PJY five. What the hell do I know? <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, you know, th- that's one thing. And the other thing is maybe starting a solo practice uh, at this time is also another a really tough thing because you just don't, there are so many question marks for the coming year. Right. Um, so I mean I, I know that from my perspective that I've, I'm applying for microsurgery fellow fellowship. Uh, the whole interviews and match process has been postponed from uh, now. Uh, there has been postponed to October. So it will be very interesting to see how uh, both the job prospects and fellowship uh, will work. Because even the people that are starting fellowship in July, for instance, for instance, you know they're not going to have the same kind of uh, operative experience then you know what what normally people have
2: so i think there's going to be an increase uh in the number of instead of just leaving your residency or fellowship and going straight into practice i think there's going to be a surge in people doing those extra fellowships or super fellowships so that they have either an extra year of training or something to fall back on um like instead only like you mentioned doing reconstructive portion or Um, I'm thankful, uh, this didn't decide for me, but obviously I applied for a hand fellowship and now I'm very thankful that I'm doing that because um, hand cases, a a lot of hand cases, um, because I can take trauma call and and I think it's gonna change, make the decision, including like general surgery residents and other specialties and doing an extra year of training just to kind of give them a leg up or something to keep them going should this happen again in the future.
3: I would echo that uh, thought actually. Uh, I'm just finalizing a manuscript for, uh, to answer the question of, do you need a fellowship to to practice? And if you want to go in academia, over the past 10 years, there's been an exponential increase in numbers of fellowship trained uh, uh, surgeons coming out. So, you know, crises like these will also push that boundary even further. So it's something for the PGY-4s and 5s to really consider.
4: Um, well, also it's, it's nice to have, you know, um, general surgery to fall back on right. if in in dire circumstances, right. if, you know, you have to moonlight or do whatever. Um, Stephanie and I are board certified in general surgery Is I'm sure, um, you yep. know, yes. are, are you, um, Jessica and George, yes, did you I do have- your general surgery boards? Yes. Um, boards? Yeah. yeah so it's are. nice to kind of, have that just in case. But um, it's funny, when I started fellowship, I was thinking like 50 50, like 50% reconstructive, 50% cosmetic or aesthetic. And then uh, after the first year of fellowship, I was like, well, maybe I'll do 70, 80% cosmetic and then 20, 30% reconstructive. And now with all this going on, I'm like, well, you know, maybe the 50, 50 or maybe doing some more reconstructive would, would be um, favorable in, in um, trying times, but um, time will tell. Yeah. It, it seems
1: that's the like, that's what's surgery. happening. Yeah.
3: Sorry, please go George.
1: Oh, no, I was going to say, you know, I, I was going to just agree with uh, what Sabine was saying is that, you know, I think that um, having more reconstructive now, and, you know, like what Francesco was saying as well, is uh, something that might be beneficial if you're looking for a spot or whatnot. You know, personally, I want to do some aesthetic, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more reconstructive based. I want to do more some complex abdominal wall stuff and some, you know, head and neck reconstructive stuff. So that seems like there's still a demand for that. And... It, Maybe the guys coming out of just pure cosmetic practices, maybe it won't affect a job search. Then, who knows?
3: The beautiful thing about plastic surgery is that we operate all over the body. You know, we can literally, we throughout history, we reinvent ourselves. So, if I think if a graduating resident has a mindset of, I want to be in this specific location. I want to have this kind of practice specifically aesthetic practice or whatever i think that's where it's going to be an issue but the reality is that the united states is so vast you can i mean if you can if you're willing to move around and are fairly flexible with uh, the kind of practice that you have i don't think that it will be uh, an issue in finding a job it's you know People are always going to have traumas, you know, facial trauma, hand trauma, and you don't necessarily need a fellowship for any of those things. There's plenty of uh, rural and non-rural positions that are, that are need these kind of uh, these kind of surgeons. So you know, I think even though uh, the situation the situation the general situation is not ideal, uh, I like to be optimistic in saying that uh, our specialty is known to. Uh, to reinvent themselves and we're always needed there's always problems to solve uh, uh, and assist other specialties so uh, I think there's great hope for our graduating residents yep, I
1: definitely agree absolutely. with that absolutely
0: yep thank you I think that this this conversation has just been so enlightening so helpful um, it's been really great to talk to you guys even though we can't we can't see you we're gonna <laughs> Potentially, who knows when we're going to see you again? <laughs> see Vir- each other virtual again. hug. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, hopefully, ASPS in September will not get canceled. But uh, thank you all for taking the time. Um, Francesco, George, Jessica, Sabine, um, you know, I truly value your opinion. And uh, hopefully, we've helped somebody on the other side. Um, And uh, I just want to wish everybody um, a healthy and safe future going forward, whether you're in medicine or not. Uh, Remember to protect yourselves. Nobody's going to protect you more than yourself. Uh, So keep that in mind. And uh, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me as always sp at porousplasticsurgery.com and give feedback. Um, We're we're all here uh, to answer questions as well. Um, And uh, follow us all on Instagram. Uh, at the stiletto surgeon is mine and you can find everybody else through that as well Um, and until next time y'all have a very very good and safe uh, social distancing so social distancing all right take care everybody